A number of years ago, there was a uh, book that came out that was very popular. It was written by um, somebody that I think described himself as a recovering evangelical. And um, he, he talked about in this book a number of different things. Um, but he talked about how he more or less pushed away from the faith. But one of the moments that brought him back was he was in his 20s and he was working as a writer. And he was in a liberal arts college out west. And he said he was taking all these courses on literature and writing and creative writing, all this. He said he had this moment where he realized that every story that gets told sort of has a pattern of some kind of crisis and its resolution. And he said that he felt like in that moment that the divine was telling him that this is the pattern of life. This is the way he's made it so that we would understand that in our human condition, we have this brokenness that ultimately is headed towards redemption and this is the pattern that's everywhere. And that sort of every single story in its own way was giving um, preparation or testimony to this, this same pattern. You think about what you want about that. But the point I want to tell the story about is he had this moment where he had this mental image that changed his whole approach. It brought him to a place where he was again willing and open to exploring God and coming closer. And I think these moments, whether they're a mental seeing or whether they're actual a visual seeing, we have these strong moments where we see things that change us. And what I'd like to talk about this morning are those moments. And we have those moments that are, um, I'm going to say negative in the sense we see something really powerful that's hard to look at. And they're positive in that we sometimes get these images of things that are really wonderful that fuel us up and help us down this, this journey that we're on. And I think we can see some of both of those today in our readings. Now, I'm going to go to the readings that are the lectionary readings. These are the ones that are signed, being read all over the world today by millions and millions of Christians. And I want to go look at the first one, the gospel lesson, just the context of it. I want to eventually go to Job, and I'm going to come back to finally to blind Bartimaeus. But that's kind of where we're headed. And to start out with our reading from Mark, you know, we're in the lectionary year, we're focusing a lot on Mark. And I like Mark because Mark is this impatient gospel. He's in a hurry. It's only 16 chapters, and he's always moving it along. And it's too, we're in chapter 10 now, and it's too much to track everything we've done. But sort of in the really broad brush, Jesus has been introduced by John the Baptist. He's called the 12 disciples. He started to teach them. And then we get into some of these great stories, the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. But when we pick up at about um, chapter 8, we get three different times in 8, 9, and 10 where Jesus wants his disciples, he wants them to see in advance what's going to happen in Jerusalem because that's where they're headed. He wants them to know and he tries to tell them, I'm going to be betrayed I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to die. And I'm not going to criticize them. I'll say more about this in a minute, but they don't really receive it. Like the first time, chapter 8, Peter, they're walking down the road, and this is that famous story you all know where, where Jesus says, well, who am I? And everybody talks about it, and Peter says, well, actually, you're the Messiah. And right after that, so, so they've got it. He's the Messiah. The very next thing Jesus goes to is, okay, Keep that quiet, but let me tell you what's going to happen. And Peter's like, that can't be right. There's no part of that. I'm not going to have that. And they go through that whole discussion. And then on the road, to, and then in Galilee, he does it again. 
and they don't receive it. And then the third time is in chapter 10, the same chapter that we're in. He says it, and they don't receive it. And James and John end up getting in this bickering match about who's going to be at, at Jesus' right hand in his kingdom. That's all they can see. And I think it's easy for us to get critical of them. I was like, what don't you get? He was the Messiah. He's telling you this. He said it to you three times. What don't you get? But I think it's hard when you think about how radical of a change it is from what they expect, right? Because they're expecting this strong political Messiah who's going to kick the Romans out and do all this other stuff. And to hear something so completely opposite to that is hard to take on board. I was thinking about this, like maybe in our modern context, what that would be like. And um, th- these are all allegations that, that I'm going to say, but so I'm gonna, that's the disclaimer I'm putting out front. But if you followed all this stuff with this um, Elizabeth Holmes and this Theranos company um, and what all went down with that, I want you to picture for a minute that you're on the startup team out in Silicon Valley, and you've got this super charismatic woman who's um, very, very, very smart. Soft, she's in her sophomore year at Stanford. She quits to start a company. Her chemistry professor, who's been there for 30 years, says he's never seen anybody like her. And she go, they go off to start this company where they say they can do all these, all these blood tests with just a little prick and all this other stuff. And, you know, you're on that team. And, you're th- and then you read in like the 2015 or 16 Forbes magazine that she's the youngest self-made billionaire ever. And you're thinking, oh, it's all got to be great. And at some point you hear in the hallway some allegation, but some notion that it's a fraud. And you're like, no, no, okay, I'm not making much money. I'm all in on stock options. She's great, all this stuff. She's in Forbes. How can this be? You don't want to believe it because it's so different than what you expected, right? And then later the SEC and all them bring, them, bring her down. That's where things go on it. But, but I imagine that's the way the disciples are. They've heard all their life about what the Messiah was going to be like. And what he was going to do and what he's going to be. And then suddenly the Messiah, this one that you've identified as the Messiah is saying, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to die. That is so different than their expectations that they don't want to see it. And I don't think we should be critical because I think we're all kind of that way in those kinds of scenarios. But even in church, right? I don't like, I mean, I would love to get up every single Sunday and, and just do nothing but talk about the good side of religion and Christianity. That God loves you, that he knows you by name, he knows every hair on your head, that there's mercy and grace and dignity of everyone and all this stuff that he cares about you and wants the best for you and all this other stuff. I'd love to just do that all day and just ignore the heartaches and the suffering, but it's hard to do, right? I'll, I'll tell you one story from early on in my ministry, when I first started doing sermon series, I've been doing them for a while, I was like, this is great. And I did this one sermon series, this is long ago, but it was, it was called Five Things to Know Before Midlife. Problem is, I didn't know everybody in the room didn't want to admit they were ever going to be midlife, the congregation I was in. So if you, if you go back and you look at the data, which I did, I'm a little bit of a data geek, but you go back and you look at the data for our attendants, we're like this, and then the sermon series starts and it goes, whoop. And I had five more weeks to go after that. And it just stayed down. And then it came back after that. We, we don't like the negative stuff. We don't like hearing other parts about it. But the thing about it is Jesus doesn't leave his disciples only on these high notes. It's not all just the good parts of the Last Supper. And I think the hard part for us is, 
if we're going to become mature Christians or we're going to push further into what it means to be a mature Christian, we've got to see these great moments, but we've also got to see these hard things. We've got to see the suffering, the betrayal, the brokenness, the hunger and the poverty and the immigrants and the human trafficking and the killings in synagogues and whatever else. All, we, we, can't, we can't pretend these things don't exist. But the problem is when we see them, they can change us. And, and it becomes very difficult. I, I've shared this before, but I was very fortunate to grow up in a Christian home where I had a very strong faith back in high school. And then I went off to be an exchange student in South America. And I remember the image, the moment. I had been touring um, an outside of Bogota in Colombia. We were taking this tour, and I'd seen all these people living in cardboard boxes. Not just a shanty town, but people in neighborhood of people living in cardboard boxes. And we went around the corner on this dirt road, and there was this little girl about seven, and she was on a bicycle, and she had fallen over, and she'd been carrying a silver, a stainless steel pot of beans and rice, and it all spilled out on the, on the dirt. And she's looking there. She's this skinny, malnourished-looking girl, and she's sitting there in the dirt crying with his beans and rice all over the dirty ground. And there was just this moment. I, I, I wish I could look looked away. But that thing haunted me. And then it's a sermon for another day, but it started that whole spiral of where's God? How's this work? Knows everything, loves us, has all the power, you know, all that stuff. But that one image, that one day, that one time derailed me for a while. It just it derailed my faith. And happily the journey doesn't end there. But, the, but I'm glad I saw it. I can tell you I'm glad I saw it today. But, it's, but it was this image that changed me. And I think that happens a lot if we're willing to do it. I think I've been on maybe 14 different mission trips to Honduras. And almost every time I go, people will go and see things that trouble them. And they'll come back and they can't let go of the image. We're in this affluent place in North America and all this other stuff. And we're having all these first world problems. But when you've seen these conditions, it can haunt you. And I think it can be dangerous even. You know, I was thinking, I was reading a, a story just recently about this photojournalist from South America, or sorry, from South Africa, Kevin Carter. And he, back in 1993, he got assigned to go cover the um, famine that was taking place in the Sudan. And he captured this one picture. And I'm going to kind of jump ahead for a second. He wins the Pulitzer Prize for it. But it's, he's titled it Struggling Girl. And you can go Google it later if y'all want to see it. Um, Kevin Carter, Struggling Girl, will bring it up. But it's this picture of this little girl who is extremely malnourished to the point of near death. And she's crawling along. And the picture is of her huddled over on the ground along this road where all these people were heading to a, a, a feeding center. And right behind her, uh, walk, looking at her and kind of walking behind her, you can tell from the picture, is this vulture. And, uh, and it's a haunting picture. It's a haunting picture. And this guy, Kevin Carter, won the Pulitzer Prize. And then two months later, he took his life. And his friend said, after that whole episode of being down there, that he used to go sit under the tree and cry and chain smoke. That image and that experience of being in such a dark place was more than he could handle. And so part of our question for us, it's dangerous, and I'm going to come back to it in a minute, is... Are we going to go look at these things and look, look at them with open eyes but have a closed heart? 
Or are we going to have an open heart but keep our eyes shut? Or is there some way to have an open heart and open eyes? And I'm going to suggest, we're going to come back to it, but the only way to do it is if, if you're doing it with Jesus, with him helping you in it. Because it's beyond our resources and what we can do. But it would be incomplete if I did this whole sermon today just talking about these negative things or these things that are hard for us to see. Because there's a whole other realm also of these things that are positive, right? Many of us have got these mountaintop moments or visions or experiences where we have some encounter with God, where we know God is there walking with us in this moment. And they can sometimes fuel a whole life in our spiritual journeys, right? I think about uh, Mother Teresa of Calcutta. When she was in her 20s, she had one of the most dynamic relationships with God I've heard of. Really interacting with him, hearing his voice, and then she went to decades of silence. If you read her journals and you know that whole story. And I'm convinced she was carried through all of that by the memory of what she'd had before and, and the way that that went. And I think sometimes in the pages of Scripture about St. Paul, because St. Paul, when you read it, he's got a miserable existence a lot of times. He's beat up, thrown out of towns, put in prison, not sure I'm going to die or live, all of this stuff. But I'm convinced the thing that he holds on to again and again is that moment when he, get, when he got knocked off his horse or donkey, put on the ground and encounters the risen Lord who's saying, why are you persecuting me? And then brings him back from somebody that used to persecute the church to being trained and being sent out as, as, in, to do mission. I think that's what fueled him. We have all these kinds of images. And then to switch to our uh, first reading today from Job. Job is a long book. I love the book. But it's 42 chapters. It ends with what we read today. It's 42 chapters that, is, that can be summarized fairly quickly. Right? I mean, Job has got this miserable existence where he, he, had, all, he had everything. And it all gets taken away from him. His family, um, his wealth, his health. It all goes. And the th playing to the, th the theology of the day, his friends come to him and say, you know why this is going on? It's because God is punishing you because of the stuff you did. Why don't you just confess and be put out of your misery? That's all you need to do. And Job is like, no, no, I didn't do anything. I, you know, and he sticks to his guns. And then he starts to cry out to God. And he cries out to God, cries out to God. And then as we get to the final part of the book of Job, God comes to him. And God doesn't answer his question, like why is this happening? But what God does is talk about his awesomeness and amazingness and the mystery of him, but mainly how great he is and who are you to question me kind of a thing. And he gets to see God face to face. And after that, he goes on, like that, that deal's done. And I wonder how often Job had any issues after that where he just remembers, okay, I don't, I don't know how this works, but I know who God is. I know God cares. That's all I know. I can't explain the misery and the pain or whatever else that I went through. And I think one of the ongoing Christian messages that we get, and I think this story even uh, prefigures it, is whatever misery we face in life is never the last word. That's part of the story of redemption. It's never the last word. And if, you, if you're super into the Bible, this last little bit, this very last little bit of our reading today, it's the very final words of Job. The textual critics will tell you, almost without doubt, 
That was added later. And that's fine. God inspired the whole thing. I don't care who put it there. But, but I think part of the message is Job went through all this, and then you get this final little tag on to the book that's saying he went on to have whoever read it, 10,000, what was it, 10,000 camels and 6,000 sheep and got to live to be so long and all this. Other. The point is, that was not the last word. He, the, the, kind of the writer wants you to know that's not the last word. And that's the way it is in the Christian faith. We, whatever happens to us in this life, we get it's not the last word. That's redemption. That's the grace. That's the resurrection. That's the ultimate being anchored to the kingdom that we have. And we see all this. Well, so we have these great things that we hold on to, like Job's story at the end, or like Mother Teresa, or like these other stories, or even like Donald Miller that I started with, walking away from faith and then being brought back by some understanding. But how do we hold these two things? That's what I want to end with today. And I want to end by going and looking at Bartimaeus. Because Bartimaeus, I think, gives us an example in this in part. So Bartimaeus has gone blind. So he's left as sort of as this blind beggar on the side of the road. And he struggles with whatever that is. And he, he's heard who Jesus is. He, heard, he hears what Jesus does. And then he finally hears on this day that Jesus is coming down the road on his way to Jerusalem. But he hears he's coming down the road and Bartimaeus begins to cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And the passage says he was told to sternly be quiet. I think, I, I didn't look to see how Eugene Peterson translated it, but I'm convinced he probably said, everybody was telling him to shut up. Don't bother him with this. Like, be quiet. But he keeps crying out. And Jesus hears him. And Jesus says, bring him to me. And, I mean, so, so pause there. Bartimaeus is acknowledging who Jesus is. He's trusting in him, and he's crying out to him. I think that's what we do. And he's brought to him, and Jesus says to him, what do you want? Well, I want to see again. And, and he heals him. And then he goes on, and he follows him. And I'm convinced, it doesn't say it, but I'm convinced that every moment after that, when Bartimaeus sees other blind beggars, or he sees whatever it is that's his haunting image, he's always thinking, these eyes see because... Jesus has healed them. And I think the task for us, whether it's good things or bad things, keeping them in context of seeing them through Jesus, right? Of seeing that whatever you encounter, the whole, all of life is a gift. And seeing that on the worst day, there's things to be grateful for. And to see, to look down whatever it is that we see as these haunting images when they come, to see them in, the, in a bigger picture of it's not the last word. That God's in the middle of whatever is happening in some way, somehow. And to be able to trust Him in that. And to remember that all of, all of ministry is drawing on God's resources to meet our needs, to meet human needs. It's not us trying to solve it. It's us trying to live into it as instruments of peace. Instruments of love or whatever else. I'll end with, the final, with this final story that um, I've said it before. I'll probably say it again. I had this old priest that I really respect who was a mentor of mine when I first started out um, who always told me that when he did communion that he, this is sort of his image for life, but he, he always says when I do communion, I always hold up the wafer uh, as the image of Christ as I view the prisoner coming forward because I see whoever, whatever person is coming, I can see their dignity, I can see their hurts, I can see whatever is going on with them 
in the context of Jesus because I've got Jesus in the forefront and I'm seeing them that way. And I think, that to me, that's an image, an analogy for everything we see, the good and the bad. We see it in the image of Christ in that place. I think if we'll see it, it'll change us. If we submit it to God, it'll change us for the good. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you that you love us, that you care about us, that you, you know the hairs on our head, that you, that you um, walk with us, you meet us where we are. You're the one who tells us to not label ourselves in some negative way. When we fall and we sin, you're the one who says, don't run around just telling yourself that you're the condemned, but to hold on to the image that you're the child of God. You're the one that gives us strength to face down um, the terrible things that happen. You give us the strength to hold the good things and give them to you. Lord, we pray again and again, give us grace and strength to do that, to always keep you in that picture and to know the gift of life and the image itself comes from you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.